Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of VMware's Partnership Perspectives. I'm Kathleen Tandy, Vice President of Global Partner and Alliances Marketing at VMware, and I'm pleased to bring you the stories and trends from VMware industry analysts, partners, and executives. This week, I'm joined by Phil Dawson, CEO and co-founder of AU Cloud. AU Cloud is a sovereign cloud infrastructure as a service provider located in Australia, where it provides highly secure data protection solutions to customers in the government, critical infrastructure sectors, and security conscious enterprises. During our conversation, we discussed industry trends that are driving the need for data sovereignty, the collective strengths of VMware and AU Cloud that together make us well-suited to deliver sovereign cloud solutions and great customer success stories. Enjoy the full conversation now. Phil, welcome to Partnership Perspectives. It's great to have one of our leading cloud providers for Australia join us on the podcast today. Hey, Kathleen, good to be here. So let's start with AU Cloud, which has not only been one of our overall cloud provider leaders in the Asia Pacific market, but especially in the very important sovereign cloud space where we're seeing just significant growth in customer focus, attention, and need. And I'm really looking forward to diving in in this area where where AU Cloud has absolutely been a leader. And let's start with AU Cloud, which you lead as CEO for the company. Can you share with our leaders some background about AU Cloud as the company, how you are differentiated in your markets, and what are your key priorities this year? So I was co-founder of AU Cloud back in 2018. Initial focus was on federal government in Australia. It's much harder, but actually the rules of engagement, what good looks like was much clearer. And the strategy was very much if you can kind of deliver to the sort of high bar of federal government, then that sort of allows you to uh, enter the the wider markets more easily. I had some significant experience as a co-founding CEO of UK Cloud, and that provided me with some considerable insights into kind of customer need and also sustainable points of difference from the providers with global operating models who will be all very familiar to everybody. The customer need really is around alignment with existing practices, on-premise practices, alignment with technology, and also alignment with partners. And VMware is so important in that because just the pervasive nature of VMware in the sort of particularly in the on-premise world. Customers in 2016-17, when I was, was mapping out the business strategy, it was very clear the increasing concerns that were building around data and data sovereignty, and also the movement towards cloud-native, digital-native, API-centric, containerized microservices. And then there's the kind of how the heck do you create a sustainable advantage against three of the largest companies that humanity's ever seen in Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. There are a number of ways around that. Data sovereignty in all forms, whether that's residency of data, whether that's about how you operate and making sure that data remains onshore and particularly around legal jurisdiction. A second area is around local control, who owns the company, where decisions are made, the autonomy of making decisions in country. A very tongue-in-cheek can tease country managers of global companies by saying that the graduate at the water cooler in Cupertino has more influence on product than they have. And there's a little bit of truth in that tease. 
And the other aspect of local control is really about adaptability to circumstances. I think we've all been around long enough to know that even the smoothest of projects has its moments and you need to make often rapid, clear thinking decisions and therefore the shorter the decision making chain is, the more adaptable you can be. So that was sort of the drive for AU Cloud. We set it up having found some very supportive Australian shareholders who've taken the business through to now listing on the ASX and proved that we could get accreditation in our first deployment. We subsequently built out a high resilience second deployment. And now with some of the changing legislation in Australia that's identifying kind of what we'd hoped, which was government best practice would emerge. And that now has been legislated in Australia to cover 11 formal critical infrastructure sectors, which is a massive extension of our explicit target addressable market. So I kind of say I've been five years into a three-year business plan, but yeah, my experience of starting up is that unfortunately tends to be the case. Things are also a little bit harder than you hope. First of all, really appreciate, and this probably flows through your leadership principles and how you drive the company, which is you started with the hardest problem first. Your design criteria was let's design for the toughest standards, which is the Australian federal government. If we can meet that, then we set the bar high and we can satisfy a whole host of other customers. And it sounds like the whether you knew it or not, your strategy was brilliant since those same standards is being cascaded down through many of the other industries. So it sounds like from the get-go, you started with one of the key principles of differentiation for AU Cloud was around data sovereignty, protecting data with this vision for the future. And this was back in 2018. So we're seeing this protection of data not that all of us have seen security concerns absolutely grow like crazy through the pandemic as everyone has just experienced so many different shifting working from home and people have had time to expose vulnerabilities. But back to 18 before that, you'd already been a leader with UK Cloud. What were you reading in the market that indicated to you that this was going to be a true opportunity, a point of differentiation and something that you've built AU Cloud on? I'd spent a lot of time when I was with UK Cloud getting involved in the European GDPR. I saw the good, the bad and the ugly of some of that discussion, often led by lawyers and lobbyists rather than actual practitioners. There are some fundamentals that I felt that governments would start to be concerned about having been participated in that discussion. And that was around actually what is data? It's a word that gets thrown out. One of the pleasing aspects of Australian government changing the way it sort of defined best practice was actually in defining data. So that it wasn't just customer data. It wasn't just account data about the customer. It became about metadata, about monitoring data, about derived data that comes from the analytics that we all do across our systems to keep them safe. Once you start understanding that that data is also the data, customer data may remain resident in a country. But once you start understanding that actually the metadata, the monitoring of the support system actually overseas, in the case of Australia, that might be in Singapore or the Philippines or somewhere else, that data has to be shared for somebody to undertake the activity they're doing overseas. And there is a risk, it may be a very small risk, and the type of data it's around may be relatively benign. But nonetheless, that data is still transitioning from A to B through some internet cables, through some satellite technology, and is still open to intercept and 
you start to realise that actually metadata is important, monitoring data, derived data is important. So I guess that experience drove me to realise that that was going to be quite a significant issue as people began to understand that, particularly in the realms of privacy. I have a very tongue-in-cheek saying, which is digital transformation is four stages, 12 steps, three procurement cycles, 10 years, and one almighty chasm between the legacy world and the cloud digital native world. And that chasm is about procurement, it's about security, but it's also about privacy as well. And data forms a big factor, particularly around the security and the privacy areas. So that's why we recognise that actually being in Australia, ensuring, we've got this made up word called sovereignty None of it's Australian. All of it is made somewhere else. The chips are made somewhere else. The supply chain is somewhere else. So what we do is ensure that the system that we built that provides the multi-tenanted cloud platform that's API enabled has got no automated backdoors, has got no access by anybody other than through a very rigorous process in an incident situation to be able to access that data. And that sovereignty of people, process, technology, and also legal commercials ensures that we can provide a sovereign cloud and that the customers of ours in Australia can be confident that whatever technology we're using to be able to deliver that secure service, because we know the world's changing. So you don't want to be designing to today, you want to be designing where the puck's going, not where it is today. You mentioned that you were designing first for federal government. You mentioned that those standards are then being cascaded. I am curious as to whether you are seeing the same relevance across industries and types of industries at the same rate. Do you see this as relatively a horizontal IT infrastructure concern? Are you seeing different rates of adoption across different types of industries? Apparently, it's being legislated specifically But I'm just curious whether there are characteristics across different industries which lead to sovereignty concerns playing more of a concern in one versus another. To be frank, it's not even the same level within government, let alone between different sectors and and different governments. So some parts of government, um, not necessarily often the most obvious parts where you'd think they'd have greater concerns about sovereignty, will adopt that. There's a gradual improvement through the audit, through the feedback processes, it takes time, not just in guide, that's why I sort of say three procurement cycles in 10 years. It takes time to move. Most workloads today still live on premise. Irrespective of the media noise and the analyst noise about the world's gone to cloud, the world hasn't gone to cloud at all. VMware knows that better than anybody. It still lives in a data center on premise, on single tenanted tin that may be virtualized. And if it's on x86, it's VMware. If it's on a mainframe, it's IBM. That's the world we live in. Not to break your flow, but in the entire 13 years I've been with VMware, Australia has right always been called out as the most virtualized in the world, the leading virtualized adoption, leading edge adoption of cloud and moving forward. And yet here you are saying the majority of the workloads are still on premise. I just want to call that out because if anyone is equipped to be able to make that comment, it's you. One of the points of data that I've clung to is that actually, for some people who've been around in Australia, the Australian federal government was actually took longer than any of the G20 to move to virtualization. But when it did, it went faster and deeper than anybody else. And 
having lived in Canberra for over four years now, I understand that. It's a very tight community, word of mouth. It's a government where people look towards the long term and their careers and, and very few people are willing. There are fewer, there are a smaller proportion of innovators than you might find in another population. But when they hear something's working, that word of mouth experience travels very, very quickly. And so I can see why that happens. So we're expecting great things next year and the year after. Now we're out of COVID and bushfires and, and the like. Coming back to the industry question, you were commenting that even within government, it's not homogeneous, right? There are lots of different types of offices and different ways they use data. Kind of back to industries from manufacturing to retail to financial services, et cetera. Are you seeing the same approach in terms of adoption and characters you described across those industries as well, or are some leaning in more rapidly than others? Yeah. We've very much focused up until um, sort of middle of last year on only on federal government. We'd started to extend mm-hmm. into the state governments of New South Wales. But we began to do some research. Some of that was triggered by the research that VMware had been doing with IDC around some of the feedback from CIOs. And we undertook some work around the critical infrastructure sectors. Now, very conveniently, federal government legislated because of their concerns around data security. And they'd seen a number of examples whereby, whether it be overseas, the colonial pipeline, whether it being the meat packers that affected Australia quite significantly, they'd seen, they'd also seen through bushfires and COVID, the impact of uh, kind of quasi-societal breakdown on not having enough pasta or, 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 or the like, the impact. And therefore, they began to, to think through the concerns. And, and for the first time, they formally recognised 11 sectors as critical infrastructure sectors and introduced legislation that meant that those sectors, in the event of a, a serious incident, government gave itself a stepping right. What it has meant is that those sectors are now looking at what best practice is. And some of them are very sophisticated, arguably more sophisticated than government. You know, the banking sector has had a regulator and has global regulators. And, but grocery and retail, outside of the major supermarket chains and, and retailers, that's the wild west of, of experience. So those sectors, to different degrees, are looking and saying, well, what does good look like? So on the back of that happening, we raised some capital. We took a strategic investment from Australia's largest technology listed technology company, uh, NextDC, who are a data center provider. We looked at expanding and scaling up rapidly across Australia. So from next month, we'll be lighting up our expansion narrative, and that will not only support state governments as well as government, but also those critical infrastructure sectors And in fact, a few security conscious organisations that sit outside of that, so resource companies would be a good example there, because everybody's becoming at director levels of organisations much more aware of and concerned about the risk to data and the existential risk to their organisation and probably their own personal liability attached to that. So we've seen varying degrees of awareness, varying degrees of adoption, But we think the tailwind is absolutely going to be around the adoption of secure sovereign cloud to mitigate that risk for them. Looking at the list of those sectors, which my team made available to me, I'm trying to imagine what other sectors of the economy aren't included on that list. The defense industry, education, energy, you mentioned grocery, retail, healthcare, critical infrastructure industry, transport, 
city infrastructure, water, power, sewage communications. You mentioned the financial services and IT. I can't think of a sector of the economy that's left. So, I mean, it really does seem like it's wholesale addressing almost all sectors of the economy. We've done a little bit of work on it. We think, depending on the assumptions you make, it's probably something between about 60 and 75% of the economy, including government as well, which is not insignificant. Falling under now some form of regulatory or, or best practice framework. And from our perspective, having designed to be beyond best practice, then we think we're in a, a really good shape. And we think it will be the trigger for a lot of historically managed service providers who built their own hosting platform, rebranded it a cloud, but actually it's not quite there. It's not quite API centric. It's not quite got those security protocols. They're doing great stuff, but I think we think they will start to look and say, we don't need to be in this part of this business. We look more about you know, adding value to our customers through how they make best use of automation AI and move into the worlds of blockchain and, and, and other areas. So that we, we're already getting some significant inbound interest from organizations who were strong regionally or even nationally where we were less relevant to them because we were just this thing in Canberra doing government. And it was kind of interesting, but it wasn't relevant to them and, or the majority of their business. Well, let's talk a little bit about that aspect as you bring up cloud providing managed service providers, because not only are you on the leading edge of the data sovereignty priorities for customers and for companies, but also around a shift in the IT model. So we are very much seeing a transition transformation across the industry driven by a variety of different reasons, increasing complexity of the IT stack, available talent. I think what I hear most is just complexity. And Phil, you were talking about the approach that you take a very robust approach in building solutions that take into account with your height standards, all the different best practices. There's APIs and the, the people and the processes. And there's one thing I've learned after several decades in the IT industry. It's not about the technology. It's about the people and the processes that people frequently forget in terms of actually yeah. being able to implement things. So I'm curious for you, how much of your growth in business is, first of all, just helping your customers understand the range of things that need to change in their business to be able to adopt these best practices? And how much is then also saying, and we'll just run it for you? <laughs> because more and more companies are just looking to be able to say, hey, this is way more complicated. You're the expert here. I want you to run it so that I can focus more on my critical core competencies. How are you seeing the growth of your business navigate those multiple different forces at play? We have a similar challenge to VMware. In, we have a very clear demarcation about what we do and what we don't do. So we deliver IaaS. We don't deliver services. And the reason for that is kind of twofold. By delivering IaaS and creating something that's standardized and automated because of the standardization, we've got a small chance of competing against Microsoft, AWS, Google. The moment you start to move beyond that, you start to move into a world of complexity and pain around the service and the commercial implications of that service and, and the productization of what you're doing. And it changes the nature of who you are and what you do. It also, most importantly, makes you a competitor to the very people who are your core customers, the partners, the, the channel, the organizations that should be able to just consume what you do, 
turn it on and off through code to support their end customers. So my analogy is we make water. We make really high quality water and it's got certain characteristics around security and sovereignty. But quite frankly, government or end customers don't want to buy water. They don't know what to do with water. They want tea, coffee, wine, whiskey, beer, some complex cocktail. And that's what our partners, our customers do. They're drinks manufacturers. And by using our water, their drinks taste better. And actually, it's cheaper for them to make their drink in the first place. So they make better margins. So that's the sort of simple analogy. The challenge we have, particularly in parts around government in Canberra, is that a lot of the industries has got a business model that's just about reselling water. Because they're a gatekeeper on a procurement panel or something, they want to take water. If we sell water at 100, they want to sell it on 110, 120. But then they also want to rebate for the 100. You know, that's the way the IT vendor industries work for years. And we're saying, no, it's 100. It's 100 to everybody. If you want to get 90 or 80, buy more or commit for longer. It's the same way that Amazon do it, same way Microsoft do it. We're no different. Here's ways, though, that you can make your business stronger by using our water. You can get lots of customers that are, you're making your tea for and you can buy our water cheaper. And, and so there is a big piece around education enablement about how to be a successful provider in the world of cloud. Some organizations are seeing that. We can almost see the ones that we think will be successful going forward because probably in a way that the early adopters of virtualization were seen as kind of crazy. Why are you doing that? It's, this is what we do. We sell one piece of tin to a customer and we sell them another piece of tin. Why would we want to make it more efficient for them to just use the same piece of tin? It's reducing the volume. And similarly in cloud, whether it's an AU cloud underpinned solution or a Microsoft underpinned solution or an AWS, in the market we've been in to date, I don't see the level of sophistication of the partners that, for example, I saw in the UK. And that was five years ago. And that was partly because there was a, greater degree of competition in that space. I think financial services is an early adopter and, and, and financial services experience had migrated across into other industry sectors in a way that I haven't seen yet. It's an interesting perspective. And as you're talking, Phil, I'm thinking of so many parallels internal to VMware as we work across partners as well with similar discussions around how they can build services <laughs> And we are very close partners in that. And I want to talk a little bit now to shift about that partnership and what it has meant to AU Cloud and how you've made a choice. So we announced our official Sovereign Cloud program last year. Now, I know you've been one of the, the leading partners with us and going first, but you were already there. So I'm curious as to a little bit about the history of AU Cloud relationship with VMware when did it start, kind of at the inception, more as we're going in the direction of Sovereign Cloud? And why do you see your partnership with VMware as a great opportunity for you to grow your business? My history with VMware goes back into the 2010s. And obviously, UK Cloud was established on VMware. AU Cloud was established on VMware. And from an AU Cloud perspective, I had relationships with leadership in the US, in Corporate HQ, which is very important. To, for both VMware and also Cisco, because it's very easy, as big as Australia is, it's a long way from anywhere and can easily get forgotten. And if systems go down, you need to get to that third, fourth line support pretty quickly. So I had that confidence, but the pervasive market share that VMware has got on the on-premise 
as much as is talked about about native digital, native application development, the heavy lifting still goes on premise. And those workloads, not all of them, but a large number of those workloads will start to move to cloud. A significant de-risking of that journey is moving from a VMware platform to a VMware platform and having the confidence that it's going to be at least as good, if not better, because actually you can now benefit from the cloud commercials of paying what you need and using and turning it on and and using automation maybe in a better way than you've been able to historically. So that was a very strong driver for me with VMware. And, and I have to say the team in Australia have been fantastic from the inception, but we've also, we built relationships with the VM user group and the technology teams there as well. I think it was a bit of a two-way conversation, but when the discussion began around Sovereign Cloud, we were very much there as, yeah, we're in this, we can help you work through some of the challenges of how do you create a global program when sovereignty means different things in different places? Some have got constraints around their existing legislation and some have got views around what that means. And so we participated wholeheartedly in the discussion. We were delighted when the program was announced and also the fact that it built on the rigor of the VMware verified program as well, which from my perspective was interesting in that in some ways, that was more rigorous than some of the accreditation aspects we've been through in both the UK and Australia, because there are elements of some of those questions which were actually more about data, because some of the previous programs are a bit older, and was a great question. Here's how we evidence that we do this thing in the way that we say that we do it. I appreciate the unprompted testimonial about the value of the Cloud Verified program. Thank you very much. So for those who don't know, we have a cloud verified program for all of our cloud providers, which is the first threshold. And then Sovereign Cloud is another accreditation above that. And then we also have our zero carbon committed distinction as well about cloud providers that are then delivering with some very strong zero carbon requirements as well as we push into some of our sustainability objectives together. We've talked a lot about a lot of different industries and the success that you've had Can you share a success story, not specifics to protect anything confidential, but I would love to hear, is there a real world customer case study or or example that you can provide what those customers' challenges were, and then how AU Cloud specifically worked to address those and provide your IaaS solution? It's very difficult dealing in government, more so than non-government. There's a great reluctance, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes less good reasons, for wanting to share and talk about the successes that are there. When we began working on probably three or so years ago was with one of the largest global systems integrators in DXC. And DXC in Australia, for a number of years, have run the fancy health records for the Australian Defence Force. So mission-critical application, obviously huge security implications around it. Typical sort of comes towards the end of the life of the hardware And then there's the conversation, do we stay on-prem or do we actually move to cloud? And whilst many of the peers making those decisions in different agencies and different GSIs stayed on-prem, the DXC and the Health Command in Defence determined that moving to cloud would give them greater optionality and what they were trying to do next. And then it became, well, which cloud? And obviously there's particular challenges, there's Microsoft practices, there's AWS, those companies have big discrete cloud practices for each of the providers. They haven't got a VMware one yet, but I'm working on that. 
Accenture actually announced a couple of weeks ago that they've initiated a sovereign cloud practice globally. So we'll see what that means. But anyway, back to DXC. So we were successful in winning that program. And it actually went back to some of the, the sort of sustainable points of difference that I outlined. The environment ran on VMware on-premise. Therefore, we're running VMware. So they saw a significant de-risking of the migration. They saw our local ownership, local accountability, local decision-making as a big factor in what we were doing. Complexities around the migration and our technology team and people gave them great confidence that we'll be able to overcome those issues as the migration occurred. And they also saw that ultimately that it, for that particular use case, the data-data sovereignty piece was much more aligned with where Australian legislation regulation was going than where it was to date. So they made that decision. I'm eternally grateful for them because the individuals involved, it was a personal as well as professional risk. We've been delivering that successfully for over 18 months now. And it has given them the optionality. It's given them the experience that was previously theoretical. So they're starting to understand what workloads around the core they can turn on and off and they don't need to have running 24 by 7 and how to run a dev test pre-production production environments and optimize the estate that they they utilize at any given hour moment whereas the traditional premise world is i've got to decide what i might need over three years i'll stick a pin in a board and make a guess i'll move the pin because the budget allows me to have less or more And we'll then set an engineering team off to design this thing, which will take forever. They've all got their own views of whether the lights need to flash blue, green or red. Suddenly, the whole project thing is about the design of something that, quite frankly, should be standardised and you can turn on today. So I think they've thoroughly recognised and learned quite a lot around the value of cloud from a commercial perspective as well. So that for us is a great case study. The team are actually, we've expanded our offerings across the wider DXC, defense, intelligence, public sector teams. Yeah, so for us, that's a great one of you know, real tricky, but very relevant migration of on-premise to cloud. Great story. And of course, DXC is a fantastic, long-standing VMware partner as well. The other thing I love about this story, You were talking before about the business model where you're providing infrastructure as a service to complement other partners who are then delivering to end user. And I think the story that you described in the partnership with DXC also is a perfect example of the increasing partner to partner, multiple partners working with different customers to help tackle and take on the greater, just much more complicated IT world that companies are facing as they have to tackle. Just in the area of data sovereignty, you've described so many intricacies. There are just a vast increasing numbers. It's just another trend that we're seeing a lot is partners working with partners, collaborating together to deliver these solutions to customers and help them move them forward. So as a local company in Canberra, there's some amazing companies in Canberra, amazing. And one of those, a company called Fifth Domain, they're specialised in cyber training. And they provided the training platform that underpinned Australia's national cyber event, which was run by Australia's national research organisation, CSIRO. But what that means is it's infrastructure as code. These events occur and then they don't, then they finish. And what they need to do is spin up literally thousands, tens of thousands of virtual machines over that period. And 
they need to do that through code. It's a very sophisticated piece of technology, a piece of algorithm, piece of piece of application. And what was great for us is it's the other extreme of moving from physical. It's actually taking that, that whole cloud native infrastructure as code, API centric, containerized microservices, spin it up, spin it down. So they did that through August and September last year. Fantastic feedback to them from their customers. We loved it. Well, right until the point that their code turned everything off. So my board of directors are getting used to this thing going up. What happened there? It was like this cloud. It just turned it off. The code turned it off. <laughs> Fascinating. Oh, that's another great success story about or a story about or how we're seeing people imagine the use of this just amazing world of technology. We've talked about AU, you run the business with super high standards. You've been able to cascade out, partner with other great partners, deliver some fantastic solutions. And as a result, your growth is on fire. I think you've grown like 60% this year or close to it. As the leader and owner for this company, which is built on talent and smart people, and all of this accelerating technology is creating, I think it's a global war for talent. Many of the people listening to this podcast have the same challenge. How do I attract talent, technically smart talent, people who are up on cybersecurity, data sovereignty, data science, they're in short supply. And to grow that fast, you must be doing a great job of attracting and recruiting the right people to grow because I'm sure your business is based on the talent of your people and your bench. As a leader of your company, what are some of the principles that you use to both attract and great keep the talent that you need to grow your business at such a difficult time? I think one sort of contextual piece is because we're not a service business, we're not chasing the to increase our revenues by another $100,000 million, we need X number of people. And therefore, the, the whole kind of engine is driven by your revenue can only grow as quickly as you can recruit. We've got a wonderful disconnect between the huge upfront capital investment that we've made and the development of essentially standardization, automation, and, and, and technology that we can leverage that in a significant way. And again, not dissimilar to VMware's development around virtualization. But we still need amazing talent to be able to do that. And particularly as we expand from a federal government, essentially one location in Canberra to the major cities around Australia, about half of our business is now not in Canberra. And from the early stage, we've always had our development team based in Brisbane, which is yeah, in another state some hundreds of kilometres away. You know, we've become virtual. We were already virtual, but COVID and, and the bushfires actually sort of drove that ability to be virtual and secure at the same time. But in terms of how do you attract talent, there's probably three things that come to mind. One is we spent an awful lot of time and investment early on defining why. Why would great people join this company? So the Simon Sinek type of, why are you doing this? We can all do something else. Why are we doing this? We crystallized that down into a, a set of values and articulated that in sentences and words and pictures. And, and that's been kind of core. They, they could probably be slightly different words, but it, it gives a sense of common values around the business that we can grow from. And it helps articulate the story of who we are, which then changes, but the values remain common. The second piece is we have a very clear mission. Will we compete um, some of the remuneration packages that some of the global vendors can throw around? Probably not. And we could do some things around 
we can be creative or maybe less creative now we're ASX listed, but but we could do that. But the thing that we can offer that they can't is a mission that somebody has got a very clear ability to be part of delivering on. And our mission is to be the leading sovereign cloud provider of infrastructure as a service in Australia, delivering to governments, critical infrastructure and security conscious enterprises for the benefit of Australian citizens. Given that sort of mission, along with the opportunity to play with the biggest train sets that they'll probably ever get a chance to play with, i.e. building platforms and adapting platforms and the like, then that's a very strong positioning. And we have values interviews when we're recruiting people. And as we've expanded, we've begun to bring in some very significant talent that our ability to attract experience and talent has changed dramatically in the last year. As we've expanded, we've, we've opened up new roles have become available and, and necessary. And we've begun adopting the scaling up framework from Vincers, not in uh, every single hook, line and sinker, but just as a framework. Strategic Investor and XDC, they did something similar and have done something similar. And they've scaled massively. And we found that very helpful as a way of framing the journey that we are going through and will go through. And that can align then to give in what talent wants is great opportunities to work on great things and to be able to see how that's developing them both personally and professionally. And so we work hard on that. We've probably got a lot of work to do as we do that. It's not ever something that you feel that you've got totally mastered or even close to. That's what we're uh, about in the Wolf of Talent. And we say to the partners is that one of the things by using AU Cloud, we would say this, wouldn't we, is actually it saves you on those talent recruitment challenges because you're not having to redesign. You can accept the standardization of the cloud environment that we provide to you. And that will save you time. It will save you effort and it will save you the need to recruit the kind of talent that we've got doing that for you. And you can focus on the other areas. You can make your water into a nice drink and focus on distribution of your drink. It's all about clear value propositions, both to your customers, partners, to your talent. I think just starting with being really clear about why. And by the way, I love the work of Simon Sinek. So just so much great learning there for all leaders. But you know, I think it all comes down to what you said in terms of defining the why, defining the set of values and providing a clear mission to have people be able to see how their work can have meaning. I think we've all learned as leaders throughout this pandemic that at the end of the day, people work for and with people. People leave people. I mean, that's the reason why they choose to leave rather than the the companies. And so having that care up front can really help set the foundation for the great growth that you've seen. So People sometimes leave and then come back because they realize what they've left. That's That's true. Sometimes they need to go check and go shopping and then realize that they had it back. We're seeing a lot of people talk about that, too. So. Phil, let's wrap up with some lighter questions. I'm curious, what are you reading, watching, or listening to that you would recommend to listeners today? I'm about to start reading The Freezing Order by Bill Browder, who wrote the uh, the Red Notice about the Magnitsky. It's very topical about Russia. I've heard great things about it from friends and family who've read it, so I'm looking forward to reading that. I just need a few flights to give myself a bit of space. Watching decided to watch the whole series of Sopranos got back again. So we're about back to series four. So we're something like 40 odd episodes into 80 odd episodes. 
and I've been watching on my own a Drive to Survive, which is for somebody who's followed motor racing for years, it's incredibly compelling. What Netflix have done with that is just amazing. For F1 to get somebody to pay for them to actually market their sport, it's just... I have to say there are a lot more of VMware devotees now who are watching Drive to Survive since we announced our sponsorship of McLaren. There are a lot of people at VMware very excited and have started paying more attention to that. It's a great show. Some of UK Cloud's early software engineers, they were just down the road, McLaren. We managed to persuade them that it was a much better thing to come and work for UK Cloud. Must have been a tough sell. I mean, you're selling against a very sexy business. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough gig if you're on the road every two That's weeks. But listening, I've got a very sort of eclectic music taste. I used to live in the UK. We're about 30 minutes from one of the world's best known festivals called Glastonbury. And for about 15 years, we used to go there with the kids. And as they grew up from sort of two-year-olds through to they now getting tickets on their own. But so every kind of major band. So I, I tend to find myself going back to Glastonbury soundtracks of, of a whole range of, of music. Oh, that's a great recommendation. I always love it when the Grammy Awards time come around because I can go through that whole nomination as kind of a, a compilation of the best for the year. So, well, yeah. great recommendations on reading, watching, and listening. Let's wrap up with this. And Phil, you have shared some great advice for our listeners in terms of how to think about running a company, setting sites high, growth, attracting, retaining talent, and building a culture where talent wants to wants to stay. What is some of the best advice that you've received, either professionally or personally? Well, it's probably boiled down to a few phases that if you ask my team, what does Phil keep saying? I probably can't remember the provenance of it, but it's been influenced through life. One that the tech team roll their eyes at is how hard can it be? But probably the main one is, I say to the team, is just look, do the right thing in the right way and we'll get the right outcome eventually. It doesn't necessarily happen immediately. It's really about the integrity of doing it in the right way and treating people right. There's very rarely a few shortcuts. You can be innovative, but you've kind of got to think it through usually rather than just winging it. Well, on that advice, which again is more great advice for our listeners, Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate hearing about how AU Cloud is really differentiating itself on the market, how you're focused on this cutting edge part of the business, which has become so important, and how you are leading with intentionality, integrity, and delivering great results for your customers. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kathleen. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. And we're back. What an insightful conversation with Phil. As someone who has now founded two companies focused on Sovereign Cloud, it was great hearing Phil's expert insights on this increasingly critical offering and why it matters. I was particularly interested to hear AU Cloud's involvement in helping design VMware's Sovereign Cloud partner program and how the rigorous requirements ensure customers are working with true experts. I hope you enjoyed our conversation too. To learn more about VMware, please visit VMware.com. To connect with Phil, you can find him on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me on this episode today. Remember to subscribe, follow, and review VMware Partnership Perspectives podcast from your streaming platform of choice. For more information on VMware's partner programs, please visit Partner Executive Edge on VMware.com. I'm Kathleen Tandy. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.